Hello and welcome to the History of Modern Greece. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George, and our theme music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is a podcast that covers the events from the fall of ancient Greece to the modern day. This is episode 15, the Peloponnesian Wars, Athens Falls. In 414 BC, according to Plutarch, while Alcibiades was traveling to Athens, he broke away from the Athenians and landed in the Peloponnese. He sent a message to the Spartans before he got anywhere near them because he feared them. In his message, he pleaded for sanctuary. In acceptance, he would divulge enough information to make up for all of the damage he had done against the Spartans in previous encounters. The Spartans got his message and couldn't have been more thrilled. They accepted Alcibiades into their fold without hesitation. Sparta now had the most powerful general from Athens working with them, and Alcibiades delivered. The first thing Alcibiades had the Spartans do was go to Syracuse and help their Dorian brothers. He had the Spartan king muster an army and send them to Sicily at once. Once the Spartans had a committed force heading to Sicily, Alcibiades had the Spartan king attack the Athenians at home in Greece. Athens had committed all of their forces to the Sicilian invasion. They were extremely undermanned at home. Finally, Alcibiades convinced the Spartan king to take control of Decalia and fortify it with stones. This is, I, I googled it, it's about 12 miles north of Athens. Okay, this cut off the land routes to and from Athens, cutting off their food supplies from land. This did fatal damage to the Athenian Empire and the Delian League. While Alcibiades lived with the Spartans, he assimilated very well. He practiced in all of their rigorous training and exercises and ate the black pudding just like every other Spartan. Black pudding was a main dietary staple for the Spartans and contained oats and pig's blood cooked, so it looked black. It is said that the Spartans didn't trust their own eyes when they saw him eating their gruel, bathing in ice-cold water, and taking part in all of their training exercises. He was bewitched by the assumption of the Spartan life. He deemed to be very dangerous by the Spartans for how quickly he adapted to their way of life. Plutarch states that he was not like this because of his love of the Spartan way of life, for he would have assumed the role expected of him in each place he visited. He lived in luxury and indulged in pleasures while living in Ionia, for being a drunk in Thrace, and for riding horses in Thessaly. Plutarch says he just didn't want to annoy other people, so he assumed the role of the person least likely to offend his hosts. It would be easy to assume that Alcibiades was going to be a Spartan forever, but no. Alcibiades decided instead to sleep with the Spartan king's wife while he was away on campaign. He impregnated her, and he even admitted that he slept with her and that the baby was his. Needless to say, he found his welcome in Sparta starting to wear out. He had made many Spartans jealous of his fame, but also they distrusted him and mostly wanted him dead. Sparta's top general, Gallippus, arrives in Syracuse. He dedicates his men to train the Syracusian men into full fully trained Spartan hoplites, and does a surprisingly good job. From this point on, the Spartans start to push the Athenians back. So I just want to quickly discuss how crazy this is. Like The leader of the Athenian army, who planned an invasion that no one else wanted to plan gets kicked off of the invasion, he defects to the enemy, gives them all the information, becomes 
like fully adapts to the Spartan way of life to the point where the Spartans can't even believe their eyes. And then as soon as the army he convinces to go off to fight the army that he convinced to go invade Sicily, he sleeps with the king's wife and knocks her up. Like, this this is almost TV show worthy. Like, they should make a TV show about this. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to continue on about the disaster known as the Siege of Syracuse. In 413 BCE, the Siege of Syracuse was continuing. And winter had come and gone, and the Syracusians had not surrendered. This forced the Athenians to make a decision. Should they stay, or should they go home? They decided to stay, and a second Athenian fleet was mustered, and from the mainland and sent to reinforce their original army. This new army arrived with a, with a new general named Demosthenes, and he was supposed to bring a lot of new ideas to the battlefield and really get them on the right path to victory. But as soon as he got there, he was shocked to see just how awful everything was going for the Athenians. He realized there was only one chance for Athenians to succeed in taking Syracuse, and this is to capture the high ground. So Syracuse, they're built right on the coast, but also at the very bottom of an incline. If the Athenians could take the high ground above Syracuse, they could pelt them with arrows and rocks all day and slowly wear them down. Nicaeus was too afraid to go back to Athens as a failure, so he let Demosthenes try out his crazy, harebrained idea. So Demosthenes led a night assault on the high ground, but he came up on the side of the sea. They actually started to push back the Syracusian forces, but then the allies on the island showed up to help the Athenians. Now, unfortunately for the Athenians, they mistook their allies as Syracusians, and they started to attack each other. As the Athenians killed their friends and allies in the middle of the night, the Syracusians regrouped. The Athenians were slaughtered and pushed back and suffered a major defeat. This is another crazy event. <laughs> Just, oh. this, this time they had to call it quits. They lost so many men, they gained no ground. But for some reason, Demosthenes decided to wait a little bit longer. An eclipse in the sky convinced Demosthenes that it was an omen. But this delay only meant more people were going to die. When they finally do try and retreat, they find the harbor is blocked by the Spartan fleet. The Athenians try an overland retreat, with no access to their ships, and most of their fellow soldiers dead or captured. The remaining soldiers tried to escape by running over land, but the terrain in Sicily is so open and grassy, it's not easy for a bronze-armored hoplite to run across the grass. The Syracusian cavalry just chased them all down and cut them to pieces. Both Nicaeus and Demosthenes were killed, and anyone who survived the slaughter was sent to the quarries to work until they were dead. This was the biggest, most epic disaster for the Delian League, and really sealed their fate. Not a single soldier survived this invasion, unless they were sold into slavery, where they eventually died anyways. Every piece of gold, every man that was sent to Sicily... Might as well have sunk to the bottom of the ocean. It was a complete and epic disaster. Like, let's just go back a little bit. Like, first they fight these people on a plan they never wanted to carry out. The guy who convinced them to do it bailed on them and then defected to their enemies. Yet they still continued to go by his plan. Which now their enemies knew. And they should have known their enemies knew it. Then they doubled down. They sent a new general... And they come up with a plan to, like, surround the city at night by going up onto the high ground. So they both come up from opposite ends, see each other, don't recognize each other, 
get into a major battle, killing all their own friends and allies. It's this is an epic disaster. It just that's, it's that's the only way to describe it. This is just brutal. So visualize this in the theater of your mind. You're a hoplite. You're running across a field. You've just been defeated. Everybody's wiped out, and you're just trying to escape. And you're running and running, and, and you look back, and there's cavalry coming after you to kill you, and you're thinking, how the hell did I get here? What stupid thing got, us, got me into this position? Now we're going to talk about the Ionian Decalean War. In 413 BC, Sparta declared the peace treaty between Athens and Sparta dead, and declared war. So when you think about it, that means when Alcibiades and that contingent of people who went out there to, to invade Syracuse. That was during the so-called peacetime. Holy smokes. While the Athenians were bogged down in Sicily, the Spartan king launched an invasion of Athenian territory. Following the advice of Alcibiades, the Spartan king marches past Megara and into northern Attica, where they conquer and fortify the city of Decalia. I think I mentioned before that this is about uh, about 12 miles north of the city of Athens. And it uh, it's on the major land route. So here we go. With the Spartan stronghold now directly above Athens, they had officially choked off the land routes. The entire intention of this plan was to be close enough to Athens to harass it every day all year until the war is over. Remember before they'd, they'd come in for about, say, 40 days and they'd, they'd go back? Well, this is going to be a 365-day-a-year war. Not only are the Athenians deprived of Alcibiades' tactical advice when they desperately need it, but they are also facing off against him. By the end of the year in 413 BC, Athens gets the news that not only has Decalia fallen to the Dorians, but also their entire expedition to Sicily has been destroyed. In 412 BC, the Spartans make a deal with the Persian Empire. Blood is in the water and Sparta is ready to kill the Athenians. They sign a pact with the Persians uh, who finance their new navy. And now the Spartans are building triremes and they are hunting down and destroying the Athenians. This deal between the Persians and the Spartans was brokered by none other than Alcibiades. The fact that the Greeks were fighting each other was good enough reason for the Persians to finance one side against the other. By 411 BC, Alcibiades had worn his welcome out with the Spartans, so he decided to reach out to the Athenians. Oh my God. Impregnating the Spartans' king's wife has a way of making all of them want to kill you. So Alcibiades quickly fled to the Persians, where he acted as an informant for the local government. While Alcibiades was working with the local Persian government, he reached out to the Athenians. He basically offered to give them complete access to the Persian coffers, if they in exchange gave up their democracy. It turns out that the Persians didn't like dealing with the Democrats. Too volatile. So this led to an oligarch revolution in the Athenian court where a few groups of rich and powerful men united to form a new government that could work with the Persians. Unfortunately, this is where Thucydides' history ends, and now we have to refer to Xenophon's Hellenica. So Alcibiades, the nephew of Pericles, the great general, the famous author of the funeral oration, planned out an invasion for Athens, was framed for desecrating statues, bailed on his allies, his countrymen, went to his enemy's side, worked with them, gave them everything they needed to know about their allies, 
And then when he wore his welcome out there, he went to the greatest enemy the Greeks had ever fought against in their history, the Persians. So now Alcibiades has officially gone from all three sides of the war and is now brokering peace with the original side. This is unbelievable. In 410 BCE, Alcibiades is returned to the Athenian navy where he leads an attack against the Spartans at the Battle of Cyzicus. Now this was a critical battle where the Thetes played the biggest part in their victory and they demanded from Alcibiades that democracy be restored. Now this is a truly ironic part of the war because the Spartans were humiliated at this defeat and even sought for peace. But the new Athenian democracy was filled with hot-headed Democrats who wanted to crush the Spartans. So a possible end to this destructive war was lost and the bloodbath continued. For a short period of time, with Alcibiades at the helm, the Athenian League went on a conquest, retaking lost city-states. So I just want to add something interesting here is, nowadays you get a democracy, you're most likely not to vote to go to war, but back then all these people were so hot-headed that with democracy, they couldn't control the populace into keeping the war going because they had one good year of winning, and they're like, let's just keep going. And even though they all wanted to stop, it was the populace who wanted to keep the war going. In 408 BCE, the Athenians launched an attack on the city of Byzantium, taking back a lost city-state and regaining precious tax money. His campaign in the Bosphorus opened up grain shipments from the Black Sea to Athens, keeping the city alive a little bit longer. In 407 BCE, Alcibiades returned to Athens as a hero and was paraded around the city. Athens was finally experiencing victories for a change. And with all these victories coming to the Athenians, the Persians started to get second thoughts about supporting a loser, and they stopped financing the Spartan naval force. For the first time in the war, the Spartans are starting to feel on the losing side of this conflict. And a new king of Sparta was appointed, and King Lysander becomes the new leader of the Peloponnesian League. At the end of the year 407 BCE, the Athenian fleet was defeated by a deceiving maneuver where they lured the fleet into a trap and destroyed many of their triremes. Now this looked really bad on Alcibiades because the attack happened when he was neglecting his duties and left a petty officer in charge. Had he remained at his post, the Athenians would not have been lured into the trap. And once again, Alcibiades was banished from the Athenian League. So again, he's back with the army, they all get victories... Someone loses a battle, and they kick the man who brought them back to the winning side of the war out again. Like, I, I, I can't get over at how comical this is. That'd be like if Winston Churchill fought for the British, then defected to the Germans, and then he went over to go fight with the Russians, and then he came back to fight with the British again, started winning the war, and then one of his subordinates lost, so they kicked him out again. Like, I, there's no comparison in modern times to something this outrageous. In 406 BC, Lysander traveled to Ionia and moved the naval base north of the Athenian naval fleet. He even reached out to the king of kings and set up a deal with the Persians. When Lysander and Cyrus, the prince of Persia, when they meet, they become good friends real quick. They have a lot in common after all. Cyrus agrees to send more gold to Lysander and in turn the Spartan fleet has more money. With all this new money, the Spartans give their 
Thetes, that's their uh, oarsman, a substantial raise. This had a resounding effect on the entire market as Thetes contracted to the Athenians, heard how much the Thetes were getting paid in Sparta, and they tried to switch sides. (laughs) Oh boy, here we go. It goes to show how economical this was as well. Thetes were a major part of the workforce, and they wanted good pay for good work as much as the rest of us. In late 406, the Athenian fleet was grounded because there were not enough Thetes to operate the triremes. This was mostly due to the fact that word had gotten out that money was better working for the Spartans. They were basically stranded at Lesbos, waiting for the Athenian reserves to attack the Spartans just off the coast of Lesbos. They get into a skirmish with the Spartan fleet and destroy several of their ships, and while they are chasing down the survivors, a storm came out of nowhere. This storm destroyed the Athenian fleet, and the commanders are put on trial in the democratic courts in Athens. The disaster was so bad that every general who was in charge of that mission, was tried and executed for negligence. While democracy sounds great and all, it meant that the angry families of all the dead sailors had the empire's best generals executed because of mistake, or just bad luck, the weather. And now the war must be fought with the next generals, who are also afraid of doing anything that might get them killed. In 405 BC, the Athenians that are left in the navy are very timid and afraid of making a mistake. Lysander follows the Athenian fleet and traps them within several inlets and captures almost all of the remaining Athenian triremes. Once the Spartans have control of the Aegean, they cut off all of the grain shipments to Athens. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America Podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mio. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities, under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. So now I'm going to talk a little bit about the savagery of the Peloponnesian War. The war broke down into savagery, into savagery, when they realized they couldn't destroy each other directly. The Spartans gave the order that any Athenian merchant caught in the open seas would be thrown overboard. Similarly, the Athenians gave orders to cut the right hand off any Spartan they caught so they couldn't be used as oarsmen. They plundered northern Greece and other Greek city-states, killing the ones who weren't sided with them, which turned the entire Greek world into a bloody nightmare. The Spartans were having troubles with the Helots, so they had 2,000 of the best helots assembled, and then they murdered every one of them. The Athenians sent merchants into an undefended Spartan village and murdered every living man, woman, and child, and even murdered every single animal living in the city-state. This war spread to the shores of Turkey, which is Ionian Greece, all the way west to the island of Sicily, from the north in Macedonia, and all the way down to the southern tips of the Peloponnese. There were 21 sieges in the entire war, and because the stone workings had excelled so far and so fast, they didn't even have the techniques necessary to breach the walls. So the only thing left to do was to build fortifications around these cities and wait for everyone inside to starve to death. This war took the people of ancient Greece to the extreme. No longer were the privileged rich men the only ones fighting. Now everyone was fighting. Slaves were fighting. Women and children fought because this 
was a war of attrition. Thucydides writes that civilization completely devolved from the chivalric people of a rich society to the barbaric slaughtering monsters at the end of the war. He believed that the fate of all the Greeks in the Peloponnesian War is the fate of all humanity in a sense that we all turn into barbarians, monsters during wartime. This thin veil that we call civilization is really thin, and underneath, we are all animals. In 404 BCE, the Spartan fleet, having completely destroyed the Athenian fleet in the Ionian theater, sailed into the port of Athens, where they were completely unchallenged. They sailed right up to the coast, where they met two Spartan kings who had surrounded the Athenian walls. Together, they tore down the walls of Athens and removed the democracy that they had held so dear. The Peloponnesian War was over. Athens had lost. Scholars estimate that over a quarter of a million people were killed in the Peloponnesian Wars. The cost that took, the cost that it took to wage the war could have commissioned the building of over 20 more Parthenons. Thucydides also wrote that this war was not ideological, like many others have said, but he believes the war was caused by Phobos, or fear. It was the fear Sparta had over Athens that prompted them to go to war. He wrote that if a military power felt it could gain more from going to war, then there will be a war. As long as one power feels that they can get away with it, they will try. So uh, this is a thought that has kept our modern world free of large catastrophic wars. The word is deterrence. You dare to attack me, you will be utterly destroyed. For example, our last 75 years, uh, major, major wars have been kept at bay because of the existence of the atomic bomb. Uh, without that atomic bomb, who knows, we might have already had another world war or two. So that's the thought. Thucydides said that only a small percentage of the population will fight a war for principles and ideologies, while the vast majority will join a war simply because they think their side will win. Mankind is much more opportunistic than ideological. Yes, there were oligarchs killing Democrats, and Democrats killing oligarchs. But there were also Democrats killing Democrats, and oligarchs killing oligarchs. All based off one side expecting the other side to lose, and they wanted to jump on the bandwagon of the side that was going to win. In the end, the Athenians learned a lot of lessons after losing this war. The Spartan kings that occupied Athens left it alone after several years, and they returned to Sparta. The Spartans never learned a lesson after the war. They just taught the Athenians a lesson. And this ultimately led to an Athenian comeback. However, Sparta spared Athens. There were many who wanted to see the city torn to the ground and all of the inhabitants sold into slavery. The Corinthians and the Thebans were among the most vocal. But Sparta decided to spare Athens because over 80 years ago, they were the ones who helped them defeat the Persians. So there is still a little bit of honor left at the end of this terrible nightmare of the Peloponnesian War. But unfortunately, it proves that Sparta never learned anything from this war and it could ultimately only lead to another war popping up in the future. In 404 BCE, at the end of the war, Alcibiades was living in refuge pretty close to Byzantium in uh, western Anatolia. And he was about to set out for the Persian court. After all, he was taking refuge in the Persian Empire. Unfortunately, Lysander sent men ordered to kill Alcibiades. And when his residence was surrounded and set on fire, he saw no chance of escape. So he grabbed his dagger, ran out the front door, and rushed his assassins. 
and was killed by a shower of arrows. That was the end of Alcibiades. Socrates, a veteran of the Peloponnesian War, was interested in moral philosophy. He wanted to figure out what led to a virtuous life. His early life could be described as one of a scientific nature, but in his later years, he began to focus more on truth and human emotions and needs. His lectures on democracy and freedom inspired young Athenians to remember what made them great to begin with and why they were better than the slave-based society of the militaristic Spartans. The older generation started to think that perhaps Socrates was corrupting the younger generation. One thing that really pissed off these older members of society was how these young kids would use logic to disarm their arguments, exposing the flawed arguments of old tradition. They didn't like that, and they wanted it to stop. In 401 BC, democracy is restored to Athens, and a lot of people attribute it to Socrates and his teachings and corrupting the youth. Officially, the new democracy rejected any notion of vengeance and just wanted to get back to some kind of normal. But people were still pissed off. It was a very bad war. This was the equivalent to a world war for ancient Greece. With the dissolution of the Delian League, the Greek Ionian city-states returned to the control of the Persian Empire. With the Peloponnesian War officially over, there are a lot of Greek soldiers sitting around without any work. And Cyrus, the prince of Persia, knows this. He hires over 10,000 Greeks to help him try and take the throne for himself. In 400 BC, Socrates is arrested for indoctrinating the youth. He tried to defend himself in a trial, but he is ultimately found guilty. He represented himself and is known to be very provocative. What we know for sure about his trial is that more people voted for him to be publicly executed at his sentencing than voted him guilty at his trial, which goes to show just how controversial his closing remarks must have been. In 399 BC, Socrates is executed. He was a true philosophical martyr and probably the last casualty of the Peloponnesian War. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the History of Modern Greece. See you next time. Stay safe and stay awesome.